Good morning. The scripture reading is from Galatians 2, 17 through 21. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Last week, as I started off, I started off needling Beyonce a little bit. Uh, she did all right, didn't she? She did all right last week. No, I'm kidding. All right. Actually, one thing I did learn um, watching the Super Bowl last week is, um, you know, in time of crisis, you never know what might help. Like, if one of my sermons start going bad, uh, next time what we might do is turn off half the lights uh, for about 34 minutes. Uh, but then even then, we might just come up three points short. So. Uh, I was rooting for the Niners. We got to pray. You got to shut me up. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we are asking for your help uh, with this passage of Scripture. Uh, We know that these are more than just words. Um, They're power. Uh, And you mean them to change our lives. And frankly, we don't even know yet exactly how you might intend to do that in each of our lives. So we're trusting in you. We're coming with a humble posture. We're coming with a sense of even submission, if we could use that word, to say, God, have your way with us. So we open our lives to you. We open our lives to you. Come on in. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, what gives you confidence? To stand before the world. Or maybe even harder, to stand in front of the mirror. Uh, What would give you confidence then also to stand before God? Or what do you typically point to and say, maybe not verbally, but in your heart, in your mind, what do you point to and say, this is what makes me acceptable. This is is what makes me significant and valuable. This here, this attribute, this thing, this achievement, this person, this what, is what makes me beautiful. All of these questions are different ways at getting about how we seek to be justified. This word that the Bible uses... This word that we looked at last week, how we seek to be justified. What makes us acceptable? What gives us a righteous standing before God, before ourselves, before the world, before others? And as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul tells us that one way, one way to be justified is the way of Performanceism, word that I'm stealing from an author and theologian. Performanceism, this is the way of seeking to be accepted as righteous by the things that we do. 
Whether if that's through religious ceremony, or through respectable morality, or through rigorous daily activity, performanceism is the way in which I can be acceptable to God, to myself, and to other people. It's living according to a belief that I try my best uh, not to lie or not to steal and always to try really hard to be polite to people. Therefore, I'm acceptable. It's living according to the belief that I help other people. Therefore, I am righteous. Or unless my friends think I'm cool, unless I raise perfect kids, or unless I get out of debt, unless I succeed in my career, I'll never be righteous or acceptable. And sadly, as we talked about last week, the inevitable, inevitable result of this performance-ism is breakdown. Emotional breakdown, because you're just so terribly insecure. Every moment and every action, every conversation, everything you do and every day is yet another opportunity to justify your existence, to justify your significance. Relational breakdown, because we just get so defensive and we get so disdainful of other people that we don't think are measuring up. We're looking down on others so we can feel better about our own performance. Or we're boasting all the time. It just screws up our relationships because we become so self-centered and totally unbearable in the way that we relate to one another. I'm like this, are you? And we see breakdown also spiritually. And ultimately, because it results in our condemnation before God, because if we're honest with ourselves, we know we never, ever truly measure up. It leads to breakdown. Performance-ism doesn't work. Thankfully, there's another way, which is what the Apostle Paul is trying to clarify to this great church in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Galatia. And he tells us that it's the way of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, where you are accepted by God, not on the basis of your performance, but rather on the basis of Jesus's perfect performance, where you're received and loved and blessed, not on the basis of what you do, but rather on the basis of what he did, where you are accepted based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus, where every last thing that he did when he walked this earth for 33 years, loving people perfectly, having a mind full of other people's needs, always putting them first, resisting all temptation towards selfishness and self-centeredness, being totally and perfectly committed to loving God and loving neighbor and loving justice perfectly, every single one of those deeds and thoughts and motives are credited to you as if you had done them and God accepts you and loves you and blesses you on that basis unchangeably forever. Amen. This is the gift of the righteousness of Christ given to you. To put it another way, 
Jesus wasn't a sinner, but on the cross, God treated him as if he were. And likewise, you're not righteous, but if you embrace Jesus, God will treat you like you are. Because he credits to you the perfect righteousness of someone else, namely Jesus. He gets all your F's and you get all his A's. And there we know the love of God, the grace of God. And of course, it's a lot easier to nod your head and say yes than it is to actually live it out, which is exactly what this whole letter is all about Where Paul in this chapter is saying, look, you might believe these things, but it's much harder to live in line with the truth of the gospel. To bring yourself in conformity with the truth of this gift of righteousness and acceptance. Much harder to do and to abide by. And so there's a battle that we need to engage in. A battle of faith, a battle of belief, a battle of perspective. That when we notice we're making something other than Jesus the source of my righteousness or acceptability, that we need to learn to preach to ourselves or counsel ourselves or comfort ourselves or strengthen ourselves or goad ourselves with words like, my righteousness is in Christ. Period. And to say it to myself and in community, to say it to one another, dear brother, your righteousness is in Jesus. Sister, your righteousness, your acceptance is based upon what he did for you, not what you do for him. And that in daily life, you can walk around and rehearse this in your heart, counseling and preaching and persuading and encouraging and comforting yourselves, saying, my righteousness is not based on how much I pray or how well I pray or how much I avoid lust or greed or how nice I am to my roommates or how much I grovel to God when I fail at all these things and I do. Rather, my righteousness is in Christ. And my righteousness is not in how well I do in this next exam or in this next project at work or whether I get that promotion or that raise or how much I get through that to-do list. My righteousness, my acceptability is in Christ. Period. Because to God, there is a full stop after that declaration. Why do you keep on elaborating on it, my dear brother and sister? There's a full stop for him, should there not be also there for you. Okay, that was last week. This week, today, now. There are ways in which we can misunderstand this message of grace. This message of the free gift of the perfect performance of Jesus given to us for our acceptance and for our righteousness. You see, one person can hear about this free gift of righteousness and say, look, this message is so great. It's so wonderfully tolerant. It's so non-judgmental. I can do whatever I want. 
and live however I want, and it doesn't matter to God. This is great. And then another person who hears about this free gift of righteousness and says, this message is so dangerous. It's dangerous. It encourages people to be bad. You're secure in God's sight, and therefore it just means you can do whatever you want, and you will. This is just letting people off the hook with no accountability. This free gift of righteousness makes you more flippant about sin, more careless with your life. What you really need are tighter rules or louder threats to keep you in line. That's really what you need. You see, two misunderstandings or two ways to misconstrue the story of grace that Paul is presenting here, either by abiding by some notion of cheap grace, sort of seeing it as mere leniency, doesn't matter how you live, or anti-grace, it's so dangerous, what you really need are more rules and going back to this idea of performing for God. This is what Paul is getting at in this paragraph, responding to these misunderstandings. So he starts in verse 17, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Doesn't this way of relating to God and to ourselves and others simply mean that you're encouraged to sin more and more and it doesn't matter how you live? And his answer is what? Absolutely not. Or as my daughter Elena has learned to say lately, no way, no way. That's Greek. No. (laughs) Absolutely not. But why? Verse 18 starts with this word for, because he's giving reasons for which he says the gospel does not do this at all, does not invite you simply to sin. And this is why three reasons he gives us. We're going to look at this quickly and then we're done. He says the grace of God gives us a new purpose. It gives us a new power and it gives us a new personal passion. And that makes all the difference in the world. So first off, the gospel, the grace of God gives us a new purpose. You'll notice in verse 19 that Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. And what he means there is I stopped relying on my performance to make myself acceptable to God or to others. I died. That identity of mine, that me that relied upon those things to make myself significant, no longer exists. My failures are dead. They don't count against me. The record of all my wrongdoings is nailed to the cross of Jesus. But also, my successes are dead too. They don't count for me either. The record of my right doings is nailed to the cross. And what Paul concludes here is, as religious as I was in my former life, it wasn't until I died to the law, until I gave up on trying to earn my acceptance, it wasn't until then that I finally started learning to live for God. It wasn't until then that I actually started to love God. Do you see that? Again, in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law. 
resulting in what? So that I might live for God. In other words, you could be very busy for God. You could be very religious. You can be very moral. You can be very active in all your life performing. And even think that you might be doing it for the good of God. And yet there's just a chance that you might not be. Because until you actually learn the way of the grace of God, you're doing it for yourself. Paul is saying something really deep here. If you only have done things for God so that you can be accepted, or because you're afraid that he's out to get you, if you've only done things for God because you think it'll make you more beautiful, or because you think he will love you or bless you more, then you've only served God out of self-serving motives, haven't you? You've never actually loved God just for himself, just to delight in him, just to give him delight and pleasure. You've only loved yourself. There's a story uh, that I'm stealing from Tim Keller, preacher and author from New York City, who stole it from Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher from a few centuries ago. And a story that illustrates this point, I think, so helpfully. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. Well, the king was very touched, and the king discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the gardener, a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court, who overheard all this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, well, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself The horse. Only in the gospel do you obey God for God's sake and not for what God will give you. How often we are oriented towards God if we are beggars for acceptance and righteousness. How much we simply come to God to use God. 
Not for love of Him, but simply that He would give us what we really want. So we give these carrots, or we give carrots to other people, but we're really giving them to ourselves. I love the way that Brandy put it. I don't even know if I can count, quote you rightly here. But when she said, when I no longer had a fragile psyche about myself, I could actually finally turn my attention outward to other people. When you finally can rest secure that your acceptance is already given to you by God freely by His grace, you can actually start to come to God simply as an act of love. And you can start to do the same thing with other people as well. This is the irony, of course. Religious people are usually the worst at this. People who live by works of the law so often are only and always giving themselves the horse. God frees you to finally, maybe for the first time, live for Him. Love Him. Because having the security of Jesus' righteousness frees you from slavery to your self-serving motives. So far from giving you license to live however you want, if you really are changed by the grace of God in this way, if you really are believing that God has freely accepted you because of the doings of Jesus and not your own doings, It actually makes you want to love God more, not use Him. It actually frees you to resist sin. It gives you a new heart, a new passion to obey God, to follow Him. Not to be flippant about the things that offend Him, that hurt Him. The gospel, the grace of God, gives us a new purpose. Living for God, loving Him. Secondly, the grace of God gives us a new power, Paul tells us. A new power. Paul tells us that an amazing thing happens when we encounter the grace of God this way. He said our lives are radically changed. The old version of me has been so put to death that I can say that I've been crucified with Jesus. That there was an old version of me, the self-centered me, the user me. The one that was dominated only by thoughts of how I can look better in the eyes of people, in the eyes of God. How I can use every conversation and situation before me as a way to feel more significant and more valuable. No, that part of me, Paul says, is being put to rest. And there's now a new me. It doesn't mean the struggle is over. But fundamentally, I'm a new person. And here Paul says, being that new person is a person that actually does not want to live in that old way any longer. That one of the greatest fruits that your life actually is being changed by this free gift of righteousness is that you long to be righteous in real life too, out of love for God. That you want to resist sin and selfishness in your lives. Again, it's not that you don't sin, but now it's actually a struggle because you've been freed to struggle with yourself for the first time. 
And the reason why this is possible, the reason why we can say I'm a new me, is because Paul indicates that there's a mysterious thing that actually does happen to those who are joined to God through Jesus. He says here in that verse, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but what? Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. It almost sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? Theologians have tried for centuries to explain this mystery, what it is, this idea that the life of Jesus spiritually actually does flow into ours. That he really does literally make a home in our souls. That God himself lives in us. Scottish theologian Henry Scougal in the 17th century, a long time ago, called this reality the life of God in the soul of man. John Calvin in the 17th century on this passage wrote this, that the Christian does not live by his own life, but is animated by the secret power of Christ so that Christ may be said to live and grow in him. I don't know if I can explain it much more than that, though we could go on and on for a long time trying to explore this great mystery, this idea that Jesus himself, by his spirit, if you're united to him by faith, lives in you. Which means God isn't far off trying to manipulate your life from a distance, but he's within, giving you power from within to love him. And to love your neighbor, dear friends, do you hear how much hope this can give you? If today maybe you're struggling against some area of self-centeredness and sin, some area that you feel stuck in, some way in which you feel like you are not following the love of God, do you see here that God gives you himself? He gives you real power. This is more than just positive thinking and more than just an encouragement to have a a better attitude. You know, I mean, this is not good news if all we're talking about here is, look, the righteousness of Jesus, well, what you really need to do is just do some more mind tricks on you or give yourself another word for the day and just manipulate yourself into believing these things. No, Paul says, you've got Jesus in you. Changing you from the inside out. Helping you to believe. Making you more like himself. As more and more of him, progressively over time as you grow, oozes out of your life and into the lives of other people. God doesn't just leave you with your naked willpower or a bag of mental tricks. He doesn't leave you on your own. He doesn't leave you powerless. He gives you himself. And this is good news. So no, Paul says, this good gospel does not simply leave you in a place where you're simply sinning all the more and living however you want because you've got God in you now. And the first thing he does is give you a new desire to become more like him. 
Okay, thirdly and lastly, the grace of God gives us not only a new purpose, a new power, and gives us also a new personal passion. And briefly, you have to have noticed here how intensely personal the Apostle Paul is when he talks about the work of Jesus, when he talks about his relationship with Jesus. He says, me, I, I, me, specifically, individually, verse 20, the Son of God who loved people in general, who gave himself for, well, the system of faith that works if you apply it properly in your lives and read enough books to get it right. Oh, dear friends, hear the apostles say, the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for, of all people, for me. And there's a passion about it that comes from having experienced in a penetrating way the love of God in a personal, infinitely personal way. That this isn't just a legal matter or a conceptual matter, but a personal matter. It's not just a mechanical transaction, but this here is a personal expression of God's love for people and as individuals. The great theologian, 16th century Martin Luther, wrote this. He said, read these words, me and for me, with great emphasis, print them with capital letters on your heart. And here we have the Apostle Paul telling us that as long as the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus just remains to you a system of religion or an abstract idea, if it never actually touches your life, if you're not wrestling with it personally or imbibing on it, drinking it in, taking it in, just marinating in it, it will have no power to you at all. It will give you none of that love that makes you want to not sin against God. None of that power that we talked about that gives you a new life and a new way of thinking and living. None of that energy to live for God and for other people. If you don't make it personal, it will simply become permissiveness. Well, I guess I can just live any way I want. Or slipping back into a performance-based way of living. Well, it didn't really work, so I guess I have to earn my way back into God's favor. The apostle says, sit on it. Print it in your heart with capital letters. Have you done that lately, dear friends? And even as you hear this message and others like it, Are you always just thinking about the other friend that you wish would be here for the sermon? Or you're thinking about that book that you want to read later on, but you're not actually saying, God, take that arrow and point it straight at me. Not only in all the ways that I might fail, not only in all the ways that I'm helpless and I deeply need the help of God, but also in the way that you have loved me and given yourself for me. Your righteousness that is for me. To your friends, will you ponder it? Will you open your heart to the righteousness of Jesus? God's perfect acceptance of you by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us a message that 
is hard to believe in our hearts and one that fades so quickly. And so thank you for patiently reminding us again and again and for many here, maybe for the first time. We pray your grace upon us that you might help us now to live in light of this and live in line with this good news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing and let's pause.